Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. In this episode, we talk to Ekaterina Urupova, who is a visiting fellow at the Arctic Institute. Her areas of expertise revolve around climate change, science, fishery and environmental policy. Her research is primarily focused on Russia's Arctic and Antarctic engagement. Ekaterina has received a doctoral degree in environmental sciences from Lomonosov Moscow State University in Russia. She has previously interned at the Antarctic Treaty Secretariat in Buenos Aires, and the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. She's also a council member of the Permafrost Young Research Network and the Association of Polar Early Career Scientists. Hello and welcome. I'm Saga Helgeson. And I'm Roman Schiffer. Hi, Katia. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation and welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here with you today and talk a little bit about uh, fisheries in the Arctic. Hi, Katia. Let's start with an easy question. For our listeners who've never heard of your work, could you tell us a little bit more about who you are, what you do, especially how you became interested in Arctic issues and fisheries governance? Thank you for the question and a little bit about myself. So I like nature and I passionate about the polar regions. So I have been working in the polar regions, I mean, in the field for more than 10 years. I have traveled to Antarctica and the Arctic on board of research vessels, and I stay there as a researcher. So I spent quite a lot of time being in the field, so I know exactly uh, where there are, I mean the regions, and why we need to care about the polar regions in general. So I like uh, those regions not only because uh, they are remote and there is only every everything about wilderness there, but also because these are our huge laboratories where we can actually learn a lot about the nature and evolution of the Earth. That's so cool. I love, uh, it sounds like you've been very busy and it's so cool that you've been able to travel both to the Antarctic and to the Arctic. It's definitely on on my uh, bucket list to do. So now the article that you've written is called Dominance of the Regional Fisheries Governance in the Arctic. You touch on some interesting topics, like you've just said, um, such as climate change, effects in the Arctic, uh, the current fisheries management system, and legal regimes. Can you tell us a bit about what inspired you to write this article? So, first of all, I have spent quite a time working as a researcher and working, first of all, focused on different issues related to climate change and fisheries. And also, I um, was focused in my studies, uh, trying to understand what is the problem, what kind of uh, difficulties we still have uh, in the field when we work as scientists. And um, I worked uh, at this scientific institutions uh, where we prepared uh, documents uh, for fishery activities of different countries. So basically I have 
collected quite a knowledge about uh, uh, ecosystem of the polar regions and I was really interested to start to uh, look at the legal side of all the activities we have uh, in both uh, Antarctica and the Arctic. So this is one of my interests in the polar regions and I pay quite a lot of attention to the policy issues and specifically I, I like to try to uh, share some knowledge about fisheries and also to educate myself. Thanks, Katia. Given the current challenges in the Arctic, for example, we've all read the IPCC reports warning that climate change will have profound implications for fish stocks and global food security. Could you describe the current state of fisheries in the Arctic and how they are starting to be impacted by climate change? This is a very interesting topic and I would like to uh, focus uh, uh, specifically on uh, environmental sides of the policy activities in the regions, both in Antarctica and the Arctic, because once uh, you start to work in the Arctic, uh, you will find yourself working in Antarctica and vice versa. So these are two regions are very important uh, to understand all the global challenges on Earth. So, but talking generally about the Arctic, so first of all, I would like to say that in the Arctic, uh, living resources are primarily the abundant fisheries. However, the productivity and species diversity vary greatly. So all this specifies the fisheries governance framework in the Arctic. So unlike Antarctica, where the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, which is also called COMLAR, uh, this commission focuses on precautionary use of the fish stocks. The ice-free Arctic region is covered by regional fisheries management organizations. And we also have the Central Arctic Ocean, but this, uh, but this is another topic to talk about. So, basically, we have a bunch of uh, fisheries management organizations and they are really busy to work in their prescribed areas. And we have the Central Arctic Ocean, which is actually covered by another agreement that it will come uh, very soon, so we can use it too. But basically, we have legal system that actually works, and we can say that it works mm, pretty well, but there are some obstacles, and we also have to um, discuss these things. So unregulated legal system that uh, we can also see in the Arctic. So discursive measures on site and ineffective negotiations, they all lead to unresolved issues. And what we want to have in the future, basically, I'm talking about us, I mean scientists, decision makers, stakeholders, basically everyone. So we want to have a dynamic law and a flexibility of decision-making in the region. So we want to bring a dynamism to a law system in the region. What we have now, it's a little bit slow. And we have a very rapid changing Arctic and we have very low working law system. So this is just briefly. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I think it's so interesting to learn about, you know, what the current legal regime is and, and what the pitfalls are. And so to elaborate a bit more, um, in your article, you are essentially arguing in favor of a pan-Arctic legal regime. 
So I'm wondering, why do we need a shared Pan-Arctic legal regime? And sort of, if you could touch on what are the dangers of not having a comprehensive international management framework? First of all, I want to explain what is the Arctic. I mean, very briefly, and why we should understand what the ocean is when we make a law, when we try to implement laws in the Arctic. So the Arctic is warming, changing, and it it actually changing faster than any other region on Earth. So this is a very important moment. So that is why uh, we should pay a very special attention to this region. And uh, we want to have kind of a holistic approach when we talk about the legal framework in this region as well. Um, We also want to have an approach that is based on scientific advice. So we need science to help us, to give us um, very appropriate and timely advice. Current legal framework, it's not bad at all, I would say. It just needs to be updated or adjusted to the system, to the changing environment. And we just want to increase dynamism in the law to make it more flexible and to create a new mechanism based on existing laws. The idea not to break down the existing system at all, but just to rethink or make it a little bit better. So one, why would we expect to have a pan-Arctic legal regime? Uh, because this is a very special region. So it's changing very fast, faster than other regions. So we need to approach and treat this region in a special way. Also, we want to unite all the legal systems or legal regimes which are actually separated now in the Arctic and also to combine all the agreements we have in a one single file and use it effectively for the future and also uh, to use it effectively in the fisheries sector. I understand the need to have a comprehensive and holistic approach to fisheries management. But the Arctic is very regionalized. We sometimes hear Arctic regions rather than region. How would a Pan-Arctic fisheries management approach work when when applied to mostly non-Pan-Arctic issues? For example, managing different fish stocks and species. And also, wouldn't there be some substantive overlap between jurisdictions and and from the perspective of different uh, fisheries management regimes? So this is a good question. And one can say, okay, we have regional uh, organizations that are working pretty well, not perfect, but still good. Why do we need to create something new? Because they still have some issues and they are not able to resolve some problems and disputes, I mean, related to the fishery uh, industry. In general, talking about the Arctic, so we can say that we have plenty species of different fish that we can find in the Arctic Ocean. I'm talking about the Central Arctic Ocean and the adjusting seas. So if we ask scientists, they will give us a list of species that are actually uh, about 600 different species can be found there. Some of them, they are 
can be described as uh, freshwater species, some of them both marine and freshwater, and some of them they're described as a high Arctic species. But it's important to know that about like 10% of all the biodiversity of the total fish biodiversity in the Arctic is used for commercial purposes. This means Arctic, subarctic, and boreal seas. Now we have around 10% of the total fish biodiversity used for commercial purposes. But what about the future? Because the region is changing too fast and our legal framework or you know, framework of different agreements, they are actually very slow evolving. So it might be a case that we are too late to change something. So why not to start to do this right now? And we have absolutely rich stocks of different commercial species of fish in the Arctic. They include cod, halibut, mackerel, pollock, capelin, crabs, shrimps, scallops, and other species. And we are happy to have them right now. And we still have to go a long way to collect more information about the ecosystem of the Arctic Ocean. So... Now, traditionally, we just separate the Arctic Ocean into two different parts, just to make it easier for everyone. There's a central Arctic Ocean and high seas or adjacent seas. So, and we want to have a mechanism that actually will help us to manage uh, uh, the ecosystem and also to take care, to conserve the ecosystem in the future effectively. In your article, you argue for the creation of a um, a, a new Panarctic fisheries regime. The way it's done at the, at the moment, or the way I, I understand it, is that we either have a spatial, sorry, geographical scope or a, a species-specific management. And then I'm wondering, do you think those are the, the current regimes, because there, there are several regimes, do those have structural limitations to deal with climate change and, and the constant new Arctic challenges? And what would a Panarctic uh, regime bring on top of that? So thank you all for this uh, excellent question and uh, so I would like to tell you uh, that we are still on the way. So all of us we know that um, in October 2018 five Arctic Ocean coastal states including Canada, Denmark uh, which uh, was acting on behalf of Greenland and the Faroe Islands Norway, Russia, and the United States, uh, we usually call them the Arctic Five, together with China, European Union, Iceland, Japan, and South Korea, uh, they signed the agreement to prevent unregulated high seas fisheries in the Central Arctic Ocean. So not everyone understands what is actually uh, written. So. It is clearly said that this agreement was signed or created, established to prevent unregulated high seas fisheries, but nothing said about the commercial fishing, right? This is the one thing that people um, actually not focus on. This is the first step for us to, you know, to start to manage the system in the right way. So according to the Arctic Council, by the end of 2020, already nine of the 10 signatories have ratified the agreement, which is good. We are right on the track 
But uh, we also have to remember that the agreement is expected to enter into force 30 days after receipt of the of the all 10 signatories and it will remain in effect for 16 years. So only 16 years. There is also an option of automatic extension of the agreement for additional five-year periods if all parties agreed. So this is also important to read these ifs. So only 16 years and only for five periods more if all parties agreed. If not, what if not? I mean, the environment is changing, the climate change is affecting the region, and probably in 16 years we will find us competing for the, you know, fish stocks. And maybe those 10 uh, parties, they will be not happy to extend the agreement. So we always have to remember about if. So if any one of the 10 parties fails to ratify the agreement, because we are still on the way, so the agreement will not enter into force at all. So again, another if. The current moratorium aims to prevent, uh, to prevent Arctic Ocean fishing, but gives a green light for research exploration. This is good. So we like it, uh, and as scientists, we want to have it. It helps us a lot. So we can do exploration um, with no limits, basically. So the agreement refers to the central part of the Arctic Ocean only, which is actually the ice-covered part of the uh, ocean. But then we have another thing, that ice-free parts of the ocean are open for fisheries and research, as it was before. This agreement actually gives us opportunities for cooperative governance of the Arctic, both for under Arctic and non-Arctic states. And also it establishes a precautionary framework for regulation of fisheries and control over unregulated commercial fishing. But there are also negative sides. So negative effects is the distribution and abundance of fish stocks within uh, exclusive economic zones in the Arctic uh, are altered due to climate change, are not able to stop fish from migrating from one point, from one part of the Arctic Ocean to another part. So fish, um, actually fish species, they can't see the borders. They just migrate from one location to another location because they search for food. And this is actually one of the weak sides of the agreement because uh, regional agreements and regional organizations and uh, the Central Arctic Ocean Agreement, they don't tell us anything about this. So we should remember about this side of the uh, negotiations and we should work in this direction to improve uh, the legal framework, the existing one, and to um, make it easier for our work in the future. So we also remember that regions, I mean, the northern uh, states, they have 200 nautical miles uh, exclusive economic zones in the Arctic that are actually prescribed by the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea 
which is also called UNCLOS, of which they have special rights regarding the exploration and also the use of marine living resources. So among Arctic states, we know there are eight. These are Norway, Canada, Russia, Iceland, the United States of America, Denmark, Finland, and Sweden. Special cases are Greenland and Faroe Islands as being autonomous self-governing entities within the Kingdom of Denmark and not under the European Union's uh, common fisheries policy. And again, we should remember those countries uh, were dependent on marine living resources being an integral part of traditional and indigenous cultures. Thanks for such a thorough description. I'm curious, are there also some regional fisheries uh, organization relevant to, to the Arctic? In the high seas, or just in seas, we have two very busy regions, which are North Atlantic and North Pacific. They are under management of regional fishery, fisheries organizations. For example, in North Atlantic, when we are talking about this region, we talk about the Barents Sea, absolutely a rich uh, area with... Uh, um, natural resources and you can find a lot of commercial species that can be harvested here among them like arctic cod, pollock, hake, atlantic mackerel, uh, hollywood and other species and we have a bunch of regional organizations like northeast atlantic fisheries commission uh, those organizations that are focused on specific uh, species only, for example, North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization. In the east, we have the same system. Uh, in North Pacific, we have the Bering Sea, full of salmon, cod, Alaska pollock, mackerel, flatfish, rockfish, and other species. And we have North Pacific Fisheries Commission. Uh, those organizations are responsible for fisheries management. And we, on top of this, we have bilateral agreements between neighbor countries. For example, we have joint commission, commission established by the bilateral framework agreement between Russia and Norway. It works somehow, but if we think about the problems, so we have examples. And once we talk about, you know, disputes, then you can easily remember about mackerel disputes in, in the Atlantic sector of the Arctic Ocean. And with an environmental change becoming more volatile and fast, uh, we might have more disputes and conflicts related to fisheries in the future. A short while ago, intergovernmental disputes emerged in relation to fish stocks in the Northeast Atlantic. So there were a few countries involved, among them Ireland, Norway, the European Union, and Denmark for Faroe Islands and Greenland. Basically, Norway and the European Union, they managed this, trying to distribute quotas between them, and it worked almost like perfect. So they, the states negotiated the division of fish stocks that enter the coastal 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zones. They decided on the total catch of a particular species, and we are talking about Atlantic mackerel, and uh, they negotiated what amount of catch each coastal state is entitled 
to this year or fishing season. So originally the states decided everything between them, the, uh, the European Union and Norway, but the climate change is happening. And it has happened that, um, you know, these fishes, the Atlantic mackerel, uh, actually these fishes uh, change the location, the distribution area. So as a result of this change in the environment, the Atlantic mackerel migratory behavior has started to change over the past few decades. In general, it's a migratory species. Uh, so there are no bodies for this uh, fish. And scientists know that um, uh, throughout its life cycle, the species can be found in different waters. And changing the environment has caused the stock of Atlantic mackerel to migrate further north into Greenlandic and Icelandic waters. As soon as before Greenland and Iceland were not considered as states that had rights to receive part of the uh, mackerel quota, and in other words, they did not have an access to the stock in their waters. So, but later the conflict emerged. Like in 2007, Iceland started fishing Atlantic mackerel in their economic zone. And it immediately made it a point of tension with the European Union and Norway. And moreover, the European Union and Norway did not pay attention to their vision of total allowable catch, what we called uh, a catch uh, limit set for a particular fishery for a year or for a fishing season. So as a result, we had a discord and this conflict is still there. So basically we have uh, changed geographical distribution of one species. Immediately we have some problems uh, in relation to agreements and laws. And then we have failed to include all relevant parties and distribute quotas in existing management area. So we also have a research conflict involved in this problem. Once the countries, they started to negotiate, they also asked scientists to help them to resolve the problem. And what we have, the problem is still there and scientists were not able to help countries, this, uh, the states. So Ireland was sure about the permanent changes in mackerel migration patterns, but the scientists from the European Union and Norway, they argued for the temporary shift uh, in distribution of Atlantic mackerel. So basically every single country promoted its own agenda that time. So after many years, we still have a problem. We don't know how to resolve the uh, conflict. So legislation was not ready for this situation. It was really a big one. And at the end, we could see that every single country approached the um, way to use this 
discord in their strategic way. So basically they interpreted the problem um, and the situation how they would like to see it. Many rounds of negotiations over the Northeast Atlantic mackerel quarters, uh, they could not be helpful. And at the end of the day, what do we have now? Sanctions implemented against Iceland. The quotas are too high. That's what Norway and the European Union think about Iceland. And from the other side, we hear that, okay, we're gonna use this stock as we want, because actually this our, um, you know, economic zone, and we continue to set our own quotas each fishing year. So the problem is still there. And there are actually two ways to resolve the problem because the legal system is not helpful at all. So first of all, they can start to cooperate, I mean, the different states and resolve the problem by themselves. Or they can just, you know, for forget about cooperation and it will lead to further political tensions. And this is just one of the examples why it does not work perfectly and having this situation with climate change and um, rapidly changing environment will have more problems of this kind in the future for sure we just understand that we have to create an effective legal mechanism uh, through international cooperation this is a very important word cooperation so talking about um I think it's so interesting, you know, with um, how the whole setup is with the international um, agreements and the multilateral agreements, but, but the fact that there are still problems, especially with the migratory species. I'm no international lawyer. Um, I do not have a background in international law. So for people like me who know maybe little about this subject, um, if we go into a bit about the high seas, so in in international law, what, what I know is that the high seas is, is an area that's um, outside the exclusive economic zones of coastal states, such as the Arctic states. So in other words, um, the high seas do not fall under any state's jurisdiction. So I guess my question to you is, um, how do you see the future of the Arctic's high seas in terms of management? Can an international framework effectively manage the high seas sustainably and prevent uh, over-exploitation? Yes, this is a very interesting question about the high seas. So having like regional organizations, we more or less can manage this in terms of the regions, like, I mean, within the areas of some regions and exclusive economic zones. But again, uh, coming back to the Central Arctic Ocean, so luckily we have this moratorium on unregulated commercial fishing uh, of 2018. Could, could you maybe maybe explain what you mean by a moratorium? So moratorium, it means that um, uh, from the beginning, uh, when the agreement starts to work or enter into the forest, uh, so no nation is uh, allowed to, you know, to conduct any commercial activities in the area except of exploration. I mean, the research exploration. So it means so far, 
as soon as this area is still covered with ice, it's not economically effective to go there for fishing. But later, when probably like in few next decades, we'll have a situation when uh, probably this uh, area will be ice open. And basically every single country have an access to this area. I should mention also about the global legal framework that actually can be used in the Arctic as well. So we should remember about UNCLOS, and also we have United Nations Fish Stocks Agreement, which actually enforced since 1995. They provide principles of international cooperation in conservation and fish management, but very important. And again, if you read the documents, you should understand that those international agreements they do not formalize the way uh, the states use them. So basically, every single nation can find a way to avoid, you know, avoid the restrictions. So again, that's very interesting. And um, talking about the agreement about the Central Arctic Ocean. So the moratorium imposed by the agreement is in fact on unregulated commercial fishing. Uh, but not on commercial fishing. If the situation worsens in the future and we have less stocks available in other regions of the global ocean, so and there is the situation that all the countries would like to fish in the Arctic Ocean and they want to separate quotas or separate the cages between the countries, but it will still be an uh, very complicated situation for everyone. So this agreement does not cover all the aspects of fishing. So, so far it just protects us from overusing the Arctic Ocean and actually the environment helps us a lot because it's all, most of the part of the Arctic Ocean is covered by ice and not all the uh, nations, they have appropriate uh, fleet to go there. It's economically ineffective uh, so far but in 10 years if some nations they don't want to uh, can, uh, extend uh, the work of the agreement so probably in the future we have a problem that you know we have nothing that can help us legally uh, regulate uh, fishery activities in the area at all now, getting a bit more into the specifics of climate change in the Arctic, um, being from Iceland myself, I personally know how important Capelin is for the Icelandic fishery sector and how important it is for the economy as a whole. And in the last few years, the stock has effectively vanished. Um, so this has obviously caused a lot of problems and the causes are still largely unknown. Uh, but many predict that the Capelin distribution shift is related to a change in the food source as a result of ocean temperatures. Now, with this said, um, can you perhaps elaborate a bit more on how climate change is impacting marine species and ecosystems in the Arctic, maybe by giving us some specific examples? This is perfect. This is my favorite part of the question. So yeah, the Arctic is changing and with the rise in temperature, species that inhabit the climatic zone south of the Arctic will likely continue to migrate northward and replace local um, cold water species. And this is obvious because we have uh, so many studies uh, already 
made and you know like a lot of expeditions uh, already uh, have an evidence uh, uh, from the field and uh, just few examples so we have for example uh, in the Atlantic sector of the Arctic we have uh, common fish uh, which is a commercial species caught so we know that we have this uh, species in the Barents Sea as well. And um, according to the recent studies, uh, we also have some information about uh, um, this species, along with uh, long graft, deb and big red fish. They have started to travel towards the north in search of suitable habitats. So it's a fact. It's already an evidence of a changing environment. And also we have these species in the central barns. We also see them in the northern outposts. So probably the uh, spawning sites of northeast Arctic coast will be shifted through the north, like eastwards, over the next 50 years. This is very fast, actually. Talking about Svalbard, another example. So in high latitudes, for example, Atlantic mackerel has been found west of Svalbard. Also, Atlantic cod, capelin, Greenland, halibut, haddock, redfish. They also have been found as far north as the shelf break north of Svalbard. It was not possible to think about this before, but now we have these studies. It's all confirmed and scientists are really optimistic about uh, the future discoveries. Um, Pacific sector. So there we have, for example, pink salmon. Now this species is inhabiting the warming northern part of the Bering Sea. Um, also some recent studies that uh, were made in the Russian Arctic and the United States waters. Polk. Um, another name of the species is ubiquitous whitefish. This is a common species in the Bering Sea and recently it uh, has been found high in the north as well. So the changes are at place. And the recent joint uh, US-Russia survey has indicated a northward shift in young and adult bulk distribution in the US and Russian waters respectively. In the Chukchi Sea in Russia, so Pollock has been found almost like everywhere. Using acoustic data, uh, Russian scientists found about like 400,000 tons of Pollock, which is about the, uh, you know, for future, it's a good perspective uh, to establish a commercial harvesting there. Another species, Polar Quart, also in the Chukchi Sea, about 200,000 tons found in 2019. It's absolutely a recent study. As a result of these discoveries, Russian fisheries companies has already planned to increase regional economic activities in the Arctic, including a bulk harvest north of the Bering Strait on a regular basis, which was also not possible like 10 or 20 years ago. The southern part of the Chukchi Sea with the Kara Sea is considered to be a new area for commercial harvesting of a snow crop or another name of this is apelia crop and all this due to shifting stocks caused by climate change and it was just discovered kind of like two years ago thanks katya 
the last question I would like to ask you before we wrap up is, in your opinion, what is needed to build a comprehensive fisheries regime in the Arctic? What do you think the next steps are? We have a little bit of time to think and to rethink and to prepare ourselves for for the future. But uh, probably in 5, 10 or 20 years, we will be not able you know, to waste time anymore. So we have to act right now. And just, you know, briefly, we need to think about the effectiveness of our legal framework to make it easy and more applicable to different um, cases and to different situations. And one can say that, okay, if I harvest fish in the Atlantic sector, why should I care about the Pacific sector? But again, it's about the perception of what the ocean is. We can't stop migration of fishes. We can't stop uh, climate change. It's happening now and it will accelerate the speed, sure. But uh, we also have to change the understanding of what the ocean is. If something happens in the Pacific sector of the Arctic Ocean, we actually must use this as a model system, as a model case for other changes. Probably they will happen later and we probably can implement those decisions or agreements or something, our actions that we used in the Pacific region of the Arctic in relation to the Atlantic sector. I just want to, you know, make it more understandable for people. The ocean is a dynamic system. It's an interconnected system of water bodies. There is no border, there is no visible line between them. What happens in the eastern part will happen in the western part of the Arctic Ocean. And we should take an advantage to use uh, you know, our possibility to analyze everything and to make it uh, useful in the future. Uh, start think about the ocean globally and you will understand that we need a legal framework that works globally. Thank you very much, Katia, for giving us your insight on this topic of fisheries governance and the need for a comprehensive legal framework in the face of all the challenges that are being encountered in the Arctic. Now, uh, just to wrap up, do you have any social media like Twitter, uh, Instagram, etc., if our listeners want to know more about your work? Well, yes, uh, I've got uh, social media accounts, among them Instagram, and also I post uh, on Twitter. All of them, they have the same name, or Cartier. So please come and join my social accounts. I'll be happy to have you as my follower. Thank you so much, Katia. Thank you so much. <laughs>